Hello, and welcome to Reincarnation Past Lives Revisited. Every week we will cover one of the many cases of reported reincarnation experiences so that we can explore the facts of reincarnation and bring the discussion out into the light about what happens to our souls after death. But before we go any further, I'd like to thank Raphael Crux for allowing us to use his music from the freepd.com public domain music site. Today's case poses some interesting and somewhat disturbing questions about reincarnation itself. This case was discovered by Dr. Ian Stevenson, who found it to be an extremely strong case for evidence of reincarnation, and it will be interesting to see what you think at the end of it. So to begin our tale, we travel back in time to the seafaring port of Wilhelmshaven on the North Sea, Lower Saxonby, Germany. In this town was a man called Helmut Kohler. Helmut was born on January 7, 1834, to a Christian family in the town. He married and had several children, including a son named Ludwig, who was born in 1873. Helmut was a timber merchant, a shipbroker, and a sawmill operator, importing wood via ship from many countries, including Norway, Sweden, Russia, and America. He would mill the wood in his sawmill and sell it as lumber, and he had a highly successful business and lived a very prosperous and successful life, becoming a respected elder of his town. Life was good for Helmut until the government started contemplating a proposed tax on imported lumber. Helmut surmised that this might drive the price of lumber up, and seeing a chance to make money buying cheaper lumber now and selling it for a higher profit when the tax came in, he invested heavily, shipping in large amounts and storing it on site. Unfortunately for Helmut, the tax was never enacted, and the lumber, rather than becoming more expensive, actually dropped in price, so Helmut was facing a substantial loss on his business. He knew he was in trouble, so he approached his accountant and persuaded him to falsify the company records with regard to their foreign exchange purchases, hoping to make the money back when the exchange rate fell. However, sadly, the rate didn't fall. So Helmut was now in really deep trouble. His accountant, fearing he'd be in prison for falsifying the books, stole the remainder of the money in the company and fled the country. Helmut panicked, feeling his fate was sealed and after attending a celebration for a festive day called the Day of Repentance and Prayer, Helmut went back to his offices, put a revolver to his temple, and shot himself in the head. He died on November 23, 1887, at the age of 53. On October 19, 1887, a baby boy was born in Berlin, Germany, to Christian parents, and they named him Ruprecht. As a child, Ruprecht was fascinated by guns and ships. Although he lived in Berlin, which is a landlocked city, his interest went beyond a mild interest, as most boys would have. He was captivated by ships, and he built a collection of them and collected photos of them and pictures. He had one annoying mannerism that disturbed his mother. Whenever he was depressed or unhappy, he would hold his hand in the shape of a gun and point it at his temple, saying, I shoot myself. He pretended to shoot himself in the temple so many times, his mother eventually forbade him to do it. Ruprecht had no real interest in education, preferring a more entrepreneurial path by starting his own laundry business. He left school at 18 years of age and grew a healthy, thriving business providing, among other laundry services, what would now be considered a nappy laundering service to mothers in the area. His business was so successful, in fact, he went from employing 20 employees to 200. He was rich, respected, and an influential businessman, becoming a member of the local Chamber of Commerce and a representative in the Berlin Municipal Council. 
However, life was about to change. When Ruprecht was 51 years old, World War II began. And as with a lot of businesses, the war created a lot of problems for business owners who were not connected with providing services to the troops. Luxuries like nappy services became unaffordable to mothers trying to eke out their limited finances while their men were away fighting in the war. Ruprecht's business started to struggle and fail. Because of the war, Ruprecht was assigned duty watch by the city authorities to observe for fires that would arise from bombings. He took a regular shift from Saturday evening to Monday morning, during which he would stay at his office to get work done during the quiet hours. His office was an old building that had been designated a historical building, and as with a lot of older spaces, the space in places was dimly lit, particularly in the hallway where his safe was located. Gloomily, Ruprecht would go to his safe to get his account books out to reflect on how the business was going. And at this point, some strange, vague feelings of deja vu started to surface, with accompanying memories that didn't fit his current life. As he would walk down the dimly lit hallway to the safe, an unbidden thought would pop into his mind. You've been in this situation before. And while he was reviewing his books, and while he was fully awake, Ruprecht would see himself in a past lifetime. In a tape-recorded statement, Ruprecht explained... I could see how I looked then. I was wearing a high collar and formal clothing. I had come from a ceremony on a special day. My business was finished. An employee had run off with the money, embezzled it and absconded. So I sat down with the account books and could see that there was no future. It was all over. Then I was in a room by myself and I put a bullet into my head at the right temple. You would call these images clairvoyance, but for me they are memories. The memories appeared to be triggered by the uncanny resemblance to the surroundings of the events of his past life. The sense of failure with the business, the same dimly lit environment, and Ruprecht himself said that the safe even appeared to be in exactly the same placement as the earlier life he remembered, and even the look of the books he was using all reminded him of that earlier time. The memories only occurred when he was awake, and they only occurred when he was in his office late at night during the watch duty. They were vague at first, but over time they became clearer and clearer. Ruprecht, realising he was experiencing something quite unique, made a written statement about his memories. He wrote, Since my earliest years I have had a distinct impression with various details that I was in a previous life somehow, connected with shipbuilding and shipping, and that I shot myself. I was in the prime of life. For the place of this life, I knew that it occurred in this old, small or middle-sized seaport, and it seemed to me later and more clearly that this seaport was Wilhelmshaven. Further, the man I seemed to be lived in an ancient house. In this house there was a small room with a chest or a kind of safe or filing cabinet in which important papers, account books and probably some cash were kept. Ruprecht writes... The person I was wore dark clothes of the style of that period, as if he'd come from an important session or unusually important event. As for the date of these events, the suicide of the person I was, it seemed to me that it would have been around 1885. He also recalled that his last business involved a business at Delton Wood. He started keeping a diary, writing down the memories as they surfaced. However, because of the war... Investigating his memories was impossible, and he knew they'd have to wait until the war's end to find the proof he was hoping for.
He remembered living in a small seaport town in New York, Germany, and he had a feeling that Wilhelmshaven was the correct place. But he did also consider several other towns in Germany that were also located on the edge of the North Sea. He wrote to municipal authorities in ten seaport towns, including Wilhelmshaven, inquiring if they knew of a businessman who was involved in the shipping of timber and was in the lumber business who had shot himself and died in the 1880s. All of the ten cities he wrote to responded back, all indicating that they had no knowledge of a person like that, except Wilhelmshaven. An official from there wrote to Ruprecht and told him that there was a man from that town that did fit the description. He was a shipbroker and a timber merchant named Cole, and he'd committed suicide. Ruprecht felt that the name was slightly off. In a second letter from the official, the name had been amended to Kohler, and it provided him with the name of Mr. Kohler's son, Ludwig Kohler. Finally, Ruprecht had a name, and he wrote to Ludwig Kohler, who responded and confirmed that Ruprecht's memories did indeed correspond closely to the life of his father, Helmut Kohler. He wrote a letter to Ruprecht, and in the letter he said, My father, Helmut Kohler, had a substantial business in Wilhelmshaven that included trading in timber and also a sawmill. Our residence was in 25 Friedrichstrasse, and right next to it was a one-storey building that was used for the offices. This building faced north, and it had only small windows so that it was always dark in there. In a corner of one of the rooms there was a somewhat antiquated safe, which you have mentioned. In it money, account books, and also a cash box and important papers were kept. My father ordinarily wore dark clothing, and whenever he went out, he wore a top hat on his head. He imported wood by ship from Danzing, Konisberg, and Mermel, but particularly from Norway, Sweden, Finland, Russia, and America. In 1888, he mistakenly believed that a customs duty would increase, and he purchased from abroad an unusually large amount of timber. Unfortunately, this was a faulty speculation because the price of timber fell much more than the customs duty rose. He then had difficulty in paying the invoices. In order to get through the crisis, he had arranged for his accountant, who had been his right hand and enjoyed his complete trust, to falsify the records of their foreign exchange transactions. The two of them thought that they could extricate themselves when the exchange rate fell. This did not happen. The accountant became afraid he would be arrested and he fled to America, taking with him a substantial amount of the company's available funds. My father now got into a complete panic and shot himself on the day of prayer and repentance. The company had to declare bankruptcy, although this was in fact unnecessary, even though the buildings, the sawmill and the lumber on hand were all sold in a forced auction. All the creditors were paid off. So... The ironic twist and the tragedy of Helmut Kohler's death was that, in fact, there had been a way out, and if he'd just liquidated some of the assets from the company, he would have had money to live on quite comfortably, and there was no need to kill himself. Finally, in October of 1956, Ruprecht Schiltz travelled the 370 kilometres or 270 mile trip to Wilhelmshaven to meet Ludwig Kohler. Ruprecht had never been to Wilhelmshaven before that point, but he could recognise certain buildings such as the town hall. He stated that when Ludwig showed him photos of a large group of schoolchildren, he was able to pick out his sons among the faces. However, he couldn't recognise his daughters. So what ended up happening to Ruprecht Schulz? Did he commit suicide too because of his business failure? 
Ruprecht's failure in business was not caused by making bad business decisions as Helmut's had been. In fact, Ruprecht had been a much more cautious businessman. He was a cautious investor who avoided risk. Ruprecht himself speculated once he discovered Helmut's story that perhaps his caution and frugality were because of Helmut's risky practices that ended up costing him everything. Now, Ruprecht's business started failing because of the destruction of Berlin as the war progressed and things didn't improve after the war as Berlin was divided into the east and west sides and the Berlin Wall was erected which caused him further financial loss. However, I am happy to report that this tale has a much happier ending than Helmut Kohler's. Ruprecht retired from his business at the age of 68 and he and his wife moved to Frankfurt where he died at the age of 80 in 1967. So. At the start of this episode, I mentioned that this case has a disturbing aspect to it, and the astute among you may have already spotted the discrepancy in this timeline. Helmut Kohler suicided on November 23, 1887. Ruprecht Schultz was born on October 19, 1887, meaning, of course, that Helmut Kohler was alive for the first month and a few days of Ruprecht Schultz's life. How can that be? What are the possibilities here? Well, the first is that Ruprecht Schultz is lying and he discovered the information about Helmut Kohler somewhere and decided to spin a great ruse on everybody. The second option is that there's a school of thought that the soul can inhabit two bodies at once and apparently there are cases where this has been demonstrated. The site that I use for my reference seems to feel that this is the explanation for the anomaly. The third option is a demonic ghostly or some other form of possession has occurred and the original soul has been cast out or subjugated and lurks in the background waiting to reclaim its body or worse has been completely obliterated never to return and the fourth option is perhaps souls on the other side are able to return to earth on a different timeline and can end up existing in two different incarnations that are alive at the same time on earth if we look at the above possibilities yes ruprecht could be lying this is possible, and the only way I can think of to discount the case of that would be to find his diaries and carbon date them. I'm not sure if the diaries exist still somewhere, as I can't find any mention of them, but given Ian Stevenson felt this was a provable and viable case, and he may have seen the diaries or might have information I'm not aware of, I think we'll just have to give Ruprecht the benefit of the doubt and assume he's telling the truth. The second option is of one soul inhabiting two bodies. As mentioned, there have apparently been reported cases of this occurring. I haven't come across any of these cases yet, so I'm not sure I'm convinced with that scenario, although I admit that it could be possible. People who've had near-death experiences have recounted a form of split soul where they can see the traumatic events unfolding from two different viewpoints, with one viewpoint being inside the body while it experiences a trauma and the other viewpoint watching proceedings dispassionately from a distance or height above the unfolding events. The third option, demonic, ghostly or other possession. Possession, whether demonic or otherwise, has been written about for thousands of years and the case I will discuss in a moment do have a disturbing appearance to this. But is it possession or is it something else? And the fourth is one soul inhabiting two bodies in the same period. I'm willing to accept that people can reincarnate to a time before our current position on the timeline of Earth, as many NDE survivors state clearly that time moves at a very different rate and doesn't appear to be a straight line. 
However, in Ruprecht's case, the problem arises for me in the fact that Ruprecht had to have been at least a month and three days old, not counting the entire period of gestation before that. But if that was the case, then who was baby Ruprecht before he took on the soul of Helmut Koller? What was the baby like before the soul of Helmut Koller arrived? Unless the baby was in a completely vegetative state, not interacting at all with the outside environment and was in effect brain dead for the month before Helmut inhabited the body, there had to have been another life or soul inhabiting the infant. So what happened to that soul? Jim Tucker discusses a few cases that he's listed under a chapter called Anomalous Dates in his book, Return to Life, Extraordinary Cases of Children Who Remember Past Lives. As with Helmut Kohler and Ruprecht Schulz, these cases appear to represent the cases of children or babies who acquired the soul of a person who'd already been alive at the beginning of their lives. I won't go into all the cases he listed, but I'll very quickly describe the basic outline of two of them. The first case is a young boy by the name of Juta, who was born four months before his uncle was killed in a motorbike accident near Bangkok. His uncle was hit by a truck, and as he fell, his head struck the guardrail of the bridge, killing him. Four months after his uncle's death, Juta became ill and developed respiratory symptoms and a high fever for several days. After he recovered, he developed two dark spots on his arms that matched the marks his uncle had acquired when he went for a tattoo. He behaved like his uncle, joked and teased with his uncle's friends as if he was their adult and equal counterpart, pouring them alcoholic drinks and stirring them with his finger as his uncle had done, and then he would sit down and drink one of them with him, tapping the bottom of the glass when he finished it to get the last dregs of alcohol out. And this is a little boy. This is a four-year-old boy. Judah displayed many of his uncle's personality traits that he kept until around the age of five, when the memories faded and Judah reverted to being just a normal little boy again, as is common with other reincarnation cases. The second case is equally perplexing. A young woman by the name of Utara lived a normal life until the age of 32, when she was hospitalised for several health issues. A yogi came to the hospital and instructed the young woman on meditation, including breathing exercises that induced an altered state of consciousness. Although Utara had meditated before without incident, after this session, her behaviour changed dramatically. She became erratic, she wandered away from the hospital several times, and began speaking in another language other than her native tongue. She told everyone her name was Sharada, and she was no longer able to communicate with her parents as she didn't know their language. She told of a completely different life in Bengal, no longer recognised her own friends and seemed to come from another time period, being unfamiliar with any implements created after the Industrial Revolution. This new personality stayed in control for several weeks and then was slowly usurped by Utara's original personality. Initially, the personalities switched approximately 23 times in the first few days and then finally... Utara seemed to be back in control, but at times, Shirada, the other personality, would appear again. On one occasion, she stayed for seven weeks. Shirada could tell the names of several of the males in her family, and this family tree was traced to a family that had lived in West Bengal in the early 19th century. So, Utara's body appeared to have been at least partially taken over by the soul of a woman who'd lived 150 years before. 
Shirata would return periodically throughout Utara's life right to the end, although at the end she was only appearing approximately once a year for short periods of time. There's no mention made of whether either personality was distressed or upset by the presence of the other. So what does this mean and what is going on? I have no idea, but it does raise some interesting questions. Whenever I come across oddities like this, my instinct is to look at how things function here on Earth because, let's face it, it's the only factual reference point we really have. And it could be assumed that whoever or whatever created life on this side of the cycle is also largely involved with whatever happens on the other side of the cycle. So, if we look at life on Earth, while on the whole, a surprisingly large proportion of the population functions normally and most people live full, complete and largely healthy lives, there is no denying that this isn't the case for everybody. There are also many ways in which a body can be born in a state that falls outside the normal realm of good health. Spina bifida, blindness, anencephaly, the list of ways a body can be created incomplete or functioning less than it should be are endless. Life doesn't always get it right here, so why do we assume that the process on the other side is flawless and not susceptible to error? Are these anomalous cases example of the system on the other side glitching, as it sometimes does here? People talk a lot about the age of souls frequently and seem to be fascinated by whether a person is a young soul or an old soul. But do they ever consider whether they are a strong soul or a weak soul? We always assume that every soul is the same strength, like a bulk order, one-size-fits-all situation. But that's not what it's like here. So why would it necessarily be like that over there? Here we have strong people and weak people, dominant personalities and weak, flawed or subjugated personalities. There are people who become great, strong and wise leaders and people who become serial killers. Is this because some souls are stronger or better able to adapt to the stresses of life on Earth? What if one soul does have the ability to push either another soul out of a body or subjugate it enough to take over the host body? What if, in cases of illness or injury, the original body actually dies so the soul departs as it normally would, but then because a nearby soul hasn't transcended, they take the opportunity to slip back into the now empty body and fight the illness? Do we always go towards the light, or do some people in fact stay linked to the earthly plane? All of these are very interesting questions indeed, and I have very mixed feelings about these cases. They half fascinate me and half creep me out. The ones we know of are hard to research, as they happened at a time when record-keeping wasn't as optimal as it is now. So, proving the past lives are difficult enough, let alone trying to work out what physiological or physical events are at play. Perhaps in time, with modern technology providing more ability to pinpoint accounts, we may end up finding modern cases that can be explored more fully with the advancements that have been made in medicine and with the larger information base we have now with our greater record-keeping systems and archiving of information. My suspicion would be, however, that cases like this would end up being classified as a psychotic or intellectual illness, and I personally don't think that's what's happening here. The final question that this case raises is, in the case of suicide, are we inviting karma to force us to repeat the events of our past lives until we stop attempting to end it all with suicide? Again, there is no set proof that that is the case. However, in this case, there is no denying the events are remarkably similar 
and thankfully Ruprecht found a way forward that allowed him to leave his next life in a much more peaceful and ordinary fashion. Thank you for listening to Reincarnation Past Lives Revisited. We hope you enjoyed this case. If you have any interesting stories about reincarnation or if you can relate your own past life experiences, I'd love to hear about them. I can be reached by email at reincarnationplr at gmail.com or through my website reincarnationplr.com. If you'd like to keep up to date on my latest podcast posts, you can find me on Facebook under Reincarnation Past Lives Revisited. We'll be back again soon with another episode, but until then, remember you are unique and your life has a purpose. <music>